The Mojo Radio Show. We scour the planet to find the biggest names in health, creativity, wellness, strategy, brand, performance, management, and more. Turn this up. This is going to be crazy. This is Jason Overcome Redman. Hey, I'm Dave Acosta. Hi, this is Cal Newport, author of Deep Work. G'day, this is Ryan Park. I'm Batman. This is Ivan Davies from my town. I'm Andrea Burke from the Canadian National Women's Rugby Team. I'm Lucas Fickendee. This is Tate Fletcher, Cage Fighter. This is the Mojo Radio Show. Or I'll be coming to see you. Then we ask them the big questions. Oh, man, this is such a great question. You've actually landed right on the mark. That's a, another really good question. It's great talking to some clever dudes, frankly. I've gone probably a little bit more in-depth with you than, uh, than I have in the book. I've done, like, 500 interviews, but nobody asked me about this. <laughs> oh, wow. And sometimes we talk about darts. There we go. Can I tell you, Dina, Gary's favourite sport is darts. How athletic is that? I think it's uh, interesting that it's your favourite, but I won't be judgmental. (laughs) Look, it's the only sport that I know of where a prerequisite is a pint of beer and a cigarette. Come on, let's be honest. The Mojo Radio Show. We don't take ourselves too seriously. So you try throwing half a dozen darts in a row and just see how you go, Uh, my friend. But we hope you will. Welcome. I got my book. To the Mojo Radio Show. Hey everybody and welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, the little program designed to give you the tips and tools that you can apply to your own little world to get your mojo working in and out of work. Thank you for climbing aboard the bus. Mind your step and please give your tickets to the ticket collector, Robbo. Don't you dare call me the fat conductor. <laughs> the fat controller. I was going to go portly. I was going to go portly portman. I thought, ah, oh, it's a bit early in the morning. You're a tad short of coffee, so that may not have got well, into well. it's rugby season, so my weight cycle's at the bottom end at the moment. Now, speaking of which, how are the Withered Oaks going? Withered Oaks have had a great season. We've lost one game. So, um, so yeah, we're doing really well. It's a shame there's no finals. But you've played, you've played, more, than, you've played more than one, though. Well, shh. <laughs> <laughs> no, we play fortnightly. It's great. I love it. I'm, I, I'm pretty sure in another 20 years we'll be doing this podcast and I'll still be playing. Do they go hard at each other? Like, is it a proper yeah. rugby match or is it like a No, it's, uh, it, it's tackle. Uh, and the only two rules that differ to normal rugby are no clean out at the breakdown. So once the, the, tackle, mm. tack, the tackled player is on one knee, that's it, tackle over. Uh, and uncontested scrums. Other than that, it's full contact. Um, there are concessions. Uh, if you wear red shorts, um, you can only run five metres, but you can't be tackled. Huh. So that's for those guys who have dicky knees and all that sort of stuff. We have a gentleman who we played two weeks ago who turned 70 uh, in a month and he's still playing rugby. So um, it's great. Do you know on that, this is a little uh, off-ramp, but I know a gentleman who races touring cars. Now, touring cars are like NASCARs on an outdoor track type thing, but a little bit different than NASCAR, but uh, same speeds and everything else. Now, he's 70, 75 years old. He's had a very good corporate career so he employs his own pit crew and he goes out to one of the local race tracks here and they have class what they call historic cars and they race and they line up on the grid they do practice laps and then race against each other and there's Lamborghinis and Porsches and Holdens and all racing and these guys come in a lather of sweat that hooking around the place and they're all aged 70, 75, and then they all sit down and have a cup of tea together while the crew work on the cars. I just think it's fantastic. Sport mm. of any type, you know, as we all know, is just you can't go past it and you're never too old. 
Speaking of which, let's get into it. I thought you were going to say, speaking of which, g'day AP. <laughs> oh, steady on, Robbo. Not that old. Robbo's Remarkable Facts. Let's go. So, Robbo's Remarkable Fact, do you have anything for us this I week? do. I've got two quick ones, and they're both based around money, and I couldn't decide between the two. One's a bit of a wow, and one's a, oh, my God, I can't believe that. Um, Netflix, found, Netflix founder Reed Hastings... Uh, recently had his personal wealth estimated at $3.6 billion. Do you know what cost him $40 that started that multinational behemoth that is now Netflix? No. He copped a $40 fine for returning a VH copy of Apollo 13 late and he walked out of there going, this is ridiculous, and started Netflix. Hmm. Good, good fact. Uh, and here's another one about money. This one is, I think you'll love this one. Back in 1932, Brazil had a rather small Olympic team. From memory, I think there was like 25 members or something, but they couldn't afford to get the team to the games which were played in Los Angeles in that year. So they loaded the ship that the uh, team was going on with coffee and along the way they stopped in at ports and sold the coffee to pay for the trip. Good story. How cool is that? Bit of creative thinking. Absolutely. I thought you'd like that one. Love a good Brazilian. <laughs> coffee. No, of coffee. Of course. Oh, I Sud- knew what you meant. Yeah, I knew Sudamedica. I was with you. Sudamedica. All right. I've got one for you. Uh, anyone who has ever looked at our show notes will know the last thing on our show notes is a quote by the one and only. Uh, Hunter S. Thompson. Correct. And Hunter S. Thompson, sadly, a number of years ago, died but what's remarkable is that you can now go and visit Hunter S. Thompson's Aspen cabin. Really? And you can go and stay there and his cabin. Now, Hunter S. Thompson was one of the great writers of all time and that's to say he led a wild life (laughs) and he had very colourful writing but he left behind this mountain compound called the Owl Farm. It's a stretch of 42 acres that has his house, a memorial, a peacock pen (laughs) and his writing cabin. You can go and stay there and his partner, Anita, who's his lifelong partner, will even provide you with stationery and you can sit at his IBM Selectric 3 typewriter (laughs) and you can write and then you can take that home and frame it as your piece of... How cool. Memorabilia from the great Hunter S. Thompson. Now, apparently, if you go there and you are a true fan and you do do the right things and Anita likes you, you may even be able to go inside his house and take a look around. So I just thought you'd love that. That's a cracker, isn't it? I do love that. Imagine the inspiration of sitting down in Hunter S. Thompson's writing room behind his typewriter with a piece of paper in there thinking, what the hell am I going to write? Imagine the inspiration. And it's kind of a it's kind of an alter ego in a way because you could sit there and you could look around his cabin, which is just wall to wall with bits of paper and articles and art and everything mm. else. Mm. Imagine stepping into that alter ego. What imagine what you could create if you stepped into his alter ego with no barriers. I think it's just it's just really cool. This is the Mojo Radio Show. Our guest this week came to us via a letter that was sent to me by one of our listeners. So thank you, Tom, for this recommendation. And our guest is Cameron Schwab. Anybody who knows Australian rules football in our country of Australia will know the Schwab name. It's a very famous name in AFL. For our international guests, AFL is said to be our national game. 
it's a, a little like NFL, I guess, in America or in a lot of parts of the world, football, soccer. Cameron was the CEO of the famous Richmond Football Club at the age of 24. So he was the youngest in the history of AFL football. And then for the next 25 years, he rotated through three AFL clubs and he is the second longest serving CEO in the modern game of AFL. Now, what's interesting about Cameron's career, as I started to read more about this guy, is that most of the roles he took on had one thing in common. The clubs were in trouble. <laughs> it said that <laughs> basically every club he went to, as you'll see online, they were at their lowest ebb, uncompetitive on the field and facing massive financial challenges. So it's an interesting story how he went to these clubs in trouble, saw them through the trouble, and then helped them find great success. And what he's doing now is he's taking all that experience, all the stories, all the war stories of his past professional sport administration roles. He now works with professional sporting companies and businesses today. He mentors CEOs, senior leaders and companies to help them build high levels of cultural, strategic and leadership trust. Trust is a very interesting topic, I think, for today's conversation. And with all that said, Cameron, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. No, it's a pleasure. No, I've, uh, I've uh, since the introduction, I've actually sat back and listened to a few, and you've had a few of my uh, my my current heroes, but also my childhood heroes as uh, as your guests. And as I mentioned to you, anyone who's had Susie Quattro on the show um, was was always was always going to get my attention. So, when somebody walks up to you and says hello, the first question they normally ask is, "What do you do?" How do you like to reply today? Uh, I think it depends on who's walking up to me, but uh, probably is also something that I didn't have to do a lot of explaining for long time because I, I did the same thing for a long time. It was three different clubs. I was a CEO of AFL clubs. And um, so that was relatively obvious thing. So to, to answer it now, if I was being um, true to myself, it would just simply say, oh, I think I'm a teacher. And uh, with a view that probably the most significant people in in sport are people who, who have been teachers. You know, we call them coaches, but those who have actually had the most influence on me throughout my life probably other than my parents, um, are people who have taught, whether it's, you know, it was growing up with Tom Hafey, the famous Richmond coach, or working with Ron Barassi and Alan Jeans, you know, great coaches. So I see them fundamentally as teachers. So I, I like to think of myself as a teacher, a teacher of um, a teacher based on the lived experience of, of leading and on the lived experience of spending 30 years in, in elite sport. And you've spent a lot of time in elite sport, and now in your organisation you are teaching corporate CEOs. Yeah. With all you've seen and heard and, as we'll get into, I suspect felt through your career, what have you found is the most important question that a corporate leader can ask themselves today? Yeah, great question. The, I think, I'll, I'll, first of all, I'll, I'll speak of the difference and I think the opportunity uh, Again, coming back to, to the notion of teaching, I, I, if I had a reflection on my time as a leader, um, as in those that notion of waking up in the morning, realising that the cavalry ain't coming over the hill uh, to save whatever situation we found ourselves in, and, and generally they were very ambiguous and complex situations. 
it would be have I focused on enabling the people who I've got around me to to support or help or drive whatever outcome we need to drive here rather than the thought that it's actually up to me. And so, therefore, I think the most important thing a leader can do is build high levels of self-responsibility within within their organisation, which by definition uh, requires them to be very high in, in regards to the teaching element of it all. So are, are they teaching would be one of the, the key things. Because if they're not, I can't see how they go even close to fulfilling, you know, the, the best of what resources and capability they have within within their organisation. And I don't think it, that gets talked about very often. I, I think it gets... It's more yeah. into it gets more. We get very solution oriented very quickly. Whereas in sport, we don't get solution oriented very quickly. In business, we do. Like in, in in business, there's very little reflection, you know, on how did how did we go about that? How did that work out? Whereas in sport, if we played on the Saturday, we don't start thinking about. Oh, we don't. We don't start focusing on the next game and probably until the Tuesday morning. We've used whatever opportunity there was in the previous two to three days to learn as much as we can from the experience we've just had, which was playing a game, and then giving as much learning and, and feedback to the playing group who are very open to that learning and feedback and use maximise the, the learning opportunities which come from that, and now we focus on the next game. Whereas I don't think that happens in business. We just move on and and people and and, and all these these wonderful lost opportunities uh, go with it. You just mentioned the word reflection, and we had Christian Boo Bakusis, who was a former FA eighteen jet fighter pilot, and we spent a lot of time talking about the debrief. Whether it be reflection or the debrief. And in your book, you actually spoke about Michael Gervais from the Seattle Seahawks, and they do the same thing with Coach Carroll. There is a, they, they seem to have a process for the debrief. You've just told it reflection with an AFL team, an Australian football team. Was there a process that you ever saw, used, or liked that you used or one of the coaches you served around used? For a start, they all did it. It was, it was seen as just part of the process. So even... I was a, I was a little boy. Uh, my father, Alan Schwab, was secretary, as it was called then, of the Richmond Football Club. And Richmond were the power club of the competition in in the seventies and the eighties, sixties, seventies, and eighties. And either in our own home or down at the Punt Road Oval at Richmond, my, my father would would go down, and often I'd I'd be with him. So I had this wonderful childhood, and he would sit down with Tom Hafey, the great Richmond coach. And with, with e- they had no benefit of video and they would both sit sit there and talk for hours about how they felt they'd played the week before and what they now need to do. That was just in, that was intrinsic in the process. And I think part of the reason for that is that they can't do anything about what's just happened, but they can do something about what happens next. And they know what happens next because it actually is a game the following week. Whereas business is much, there's much more continuous process. So therefore... You need to you need to have a, a, a quite a systematic approach to how you're going to go about that, and so I would say all of the coaches did it, and they did it to varying varying degrees. Uh, probably uh, 
the best I'd worked with personally was, uh, from that perspective, was Neil Danaher, who was coaching at Melbourne. And, again, I think he's taken that into his life. He's now he's got a terrible disease, motor neurone disease, and doing a lot of work in, in this regard. And I, and I can see the coach in him uh, go forward as someone who's now bringing whatever learnings he's lived experience as a coach into his efforts to, you know, bring awareness to motor neurone disease and obviously try and generate as much funding as he can to, to he, kill, he's, he calls it fight the beast. And I see that in him. And he was, he, he had this, this beautiful mix of, um, of singular determination, but recognition and understanding that, uh, he had to be a deep learner and the thing he had to learn about was the capability of his people and teach as much as he possibly could. And uh, it was a very systematic approach as well. And uh, he was into systems and I'm, I'm someone who's into systems as well. And, uh, and I really appreciated that in his coaching. So the other one, just while I think about it, is, is actually Alan Jeans was that as well. And Alan Jeans was also a, he was a policeman by training. And I think the same thing applied. The, 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 the value of the debrief, if you like, would have happened for him as a policeman as it did as a coach. Systems is something that is in your system because in the book you said it's not a competition of teams, it's a competition of systems. And the example you gave was here in Australia, the Hawthorne Football Club has been a great dynasty uh, of the last decade. And you said the reason they won was because they had the best systems and other clubs have tried to replicate it by appointing the right people to do it, but they haven't had the right insight inside this system. And although they've won a lot of premierships, what's interesting is that people who worked in the system then went to other teams and then they saw success. The book you talked about, the fact the Patriots, the famous NFL franchise in the States, have done the same thing with systems. Just describe what that system is, because I think any business person listening would go, we have a system. But there's a difference between a system like Hawthorne, which can do it over a period of time and have players come and go, but still be a dynasty. And the Patriots is another great example. When you talk system, what do you mean? And why is their system so outstanding in comparison to others? Probably in, in, in writing that, that piece, People will always talk about the game in, in terms of club versus club. You know, they will talk about, you know, our club versus your club. And I always understood it right from the very outset that it was system versus system. And and recognizing that basically as as leaders in an organization, whether we're, we're whether we're coaching a football team or CEO of a business or CEO of a football football club, is the only two levers you actually have are your systems levers and your talent levers and and effectively your talent lever is the product of, of our system but once you've got your talent in place they're the two things that they're moving but they're not they're, they're moving if, if the system moves that the talent lever's got to move in it's got to respond to it in some shape or form and so i like the metaphor of that that you have have a uh, you've got your hand on two levers but they're both moving subtly and on all that those things at the same time so Alistair Clarkson, coach of, of Hawthorne, he's very systems-oriented, but he's also, at, at his heart, he, he's, he's a wonderful learner and, and, and he's got a great ability to say, I've learned this, but now I can teach that, and all based on a fundamental thinking on, on how he believes the game 
the game needs to be played. And he, for instance, brought a, a very flexible approach to to his coaching, where whereby he could be they, we, his team could be playing one way for a, a period of the game, and he was able and had taught a second way of playing, where basically they could play a second way halfway through a quarter, which is really unusual. That's that hasn't happened before, and that that made them very difficult to play against, and and ultimately. In sport, the objective is to be very hard to play against because if you become there's there's a sort of a, an uncertain predictability that you need to actually create predictable for the players who are on your team, but very difficult to actually play against. And so that was the core of his core of his philosophy. But any system needs to build on a current capability set, and therefore you have to have the flexibility to recognise and understand how you can use that capability set. To, to your own best advantage. And so coming through that as him as a learner and, and to even describe the way that they played, you could actually describe a different way that they played from the outside looking in. Uh, on the team they might have won the premiership in 2008 to the team that won in 2013, they played differently. Uh, but they played to a system. And it didn't matter if they, you know, they, they lost the best player in the competition in Buddy Franklin who goes and plays for Sydney. And they still win the next two premier, and they still need, still win the next two premierships. And there's an underlying philosophy behind it that that within their football club, uh, no, no one is indispensable, but no one is irrelevant either. And I, I think in organisations, if if people actually have this sense of indispensability, I don't think I've ever said that before, of the indispensable about about them. Well, that, that means that particularly in a team-based environment, that, that's a very unhealthy place. But also if someone feels that they're irrelevant to the performance of the organisation, that can have a that can have a, a similar impact on what you would say that the, the values and the culture of, of that place are. So that have that outlook. And, and the interesting thing was that when they win a premiership one year and, and, and Lance Franklin, Buddy Franklin's a star, there's a young fellow, Will Langford, who's like on their rookie list, almost an incidental player in that in that season. But the very next season, Will Langford's the player who steps in and plays a pivotal role in a grand final uh, when uh, when Buddy Franklin's now playing for Sydney. And that's because the system was so powerful. And Will Langford had grown up in that system uh, and always felt that there might be a day that he will end up playing a part in whatever whatever that club needs to do. And and so if if you were to <clears throat> excuse me, if you were as a leader, were able to to step back and say, I've created that. Well, gee, that, that's, a, that's a wonderful legacy to have. And then the continuation of that is that three coaches who, who basically cut their teeth in that coaching system then go on when Hawthorne uh, don't win the premiership for the first time in three years, they go on and win the next three premierships. Uh, Luke Beveridge at the Western Bulldogs, uh, Damien Hardwick at Richmond and Adam Simpson at the West Coast Eagles all did their major part of their coach development, coach education under the Alistair Clarkson system at Hawthorne. And and there's actually clubs in the mix this year. Richmond are in the mix again this year for, and the West Coast Eagles are in the mix again this year. So, so it'd be interesting to see if they can maintain that it's a it's a dynasty of a different type, you know. It's a it's a dynasty of coaches, which is quite which has happened. This has happened for the first time in the history of the game. This is gold for you, Robbo. I mean, as a coach of a young young fellas rugby team, to hear that that's to me that's gold. 
Yeah. Well, as a coach, as a coach at junior level, it's gold to hear anything outside of, come on, mate, get going. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what's interesting with this, Robbo, and this is something that I don't think our listeners would be aware of, that you are way ahead of the game because in the Withered Oaks rugby team that you play in, (laughs) the game you play in the second half after a few beers is dramatically different. Your team can change how they play in a game based on how many beers they have, which makes you very unpredictable. Yeah, and the the other other thing you can do is slip a few vodkas in the opposition beers and that puts you (laughs) in a better position. (laughs) Does Does the game get better or worse? Uh yeah, the game the game improves. Yeah, it does get yeah. better. Well, it feels it feels like it gets better. Put it that way. Certainly, <laughs> it certainly becomes more fun to watch. That's right, um, Cameron. You've said there was a uh, just if we if we take this off ramp and continue down it. Something you said was the CEO should be the best person to read the play. Yeah. How does a CEO build that skill to be the one who can like if there's a a, a great player they're able to read the play and see what's about to happen, understand the nature of where we're at. How does a CEO build that skill? I think there's probably, again, the, the important word that we used before is, is the notion of reflection. And, and probably we, 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 we live in a world where reflection has never been more important but uh, less done, if you like. There's, there's, no, there's so little space in our, in our lives and, uh, and there's so many so many easy, busy options for us, particularly as a CEO, that it's a, it's in, in the end, one of the things I learned when I became a CEO is that there was a certain, and I, and I was I was a young CEO, so there was a certain assumption that I made and that the first one was I was now the boss. And and in any way, in many ways, you know, you, you're the boss because you've got the best car park or you're the boss because you've got the best, um, the best, uh, uh, you know the best office back in the day, all those all those sorts of things. But what you actually work out is that re- very rarely are you doing much bossing. You know, you you find that your uh, you know it's the you, you can't you can't tell your marketing person or your commercial person how to be a commercial person or your finance person how to add up or whatever it might be. You you are reliant on them doing their jobs well. And so, therefore, the, the job by the minute you become a CEO, the job becomes immediately vague at the very time you thought it was actually going to become very certain and it's going to become very obvious. And, and so, therefore, anything which is vague and unclear requires, a uh, by, again, by definition, a, a natural process of reflection, and that reflection needs to be what, 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 what the job requires of you, uh, but also what, <coughs> what the organisation most needs at, at that time. But because we're stuck in the busy the whole time, we're, we're, we're much, much less inclined to actually do it than we've ever been before. So, you, so the, the single determination a, a leader must have is are they making space for self-understanding and are they making space for, uh, and it's going to be a deliberate practice, of, of understanding what the organisation needs now. And uh, I, I think the, a wonderful question, or two, two questions I'd start with, uh, first of all, regularly asking yourself the question, What's important? Just, just simply, what's important at this stage in the development of the organisation? And secondly, what does the role expect of me at this particular stage? You know, if you if you're not actually really focused on what the role expects of you, uh, because the role, the role that will change, that will evolve, that will emerge. That's not a, that's not a singular thing throughout your time as a leader, and you need to do that in, again in a very deliberate process. And I know that you've had. 
Cal Newport uh, on the show at some stage. But the, just the just the discipline of time blocking and setting aside space and putting yourself into a into into a uh, uh, allow yourself the, almost the necessity of. Um, and just just understanding those those two questions, just simply what's important and what does the role expect of me, and then from that you can then ask yourself what do you expect of the role because I think it's it's critically important that uh, that the role's fulfilling for you what you need it to fulfil you know beyond the salary beyond the beyond the obvious aspects of uh, what what working for any organisation means. There was a term you used then, Cameron. You said vague and unclear, and I would have to say that the majority of companies that you come across would have in the front of their business plan, their vision, their mission, their values, their ethos, their principles, whatever you want to call them. It's all jammed the front of the business plan. Yet I would defy the board to be able to repeat them, let alone the leader. And certainly down through the team, it would certainly be vague or unclear And then if you went down to the guys in the factory or the people out in the sales force or the people out on the floor doing the work, it gets even more unclear and more vaguer. I've heard you talk about the fact that it's possible. You've been been in organisations and been in teams where they've created a team ethos that went from the field to the office and from the office to the field, which is kind of, I guess, a way of saying in the corporate world from the office out to the team dispersed around a country or on the streets. Tell me the stepping stones that you saw a great leader do that spread that team ethos where it was not vague and it was clear. Firstly, I think we can the, – I understand the conversation and the importance of discussion of, uh, of values and ethos and these sorts of things, but – what I what I learned, and I learned it quite early in the piece, is that most most of those things are an, an outcome. They're, they're not. You know, well, well, I'd say that you know, and there's, there's many famous studies or famous examples of, of organisations who had, uh, you know, whether it be integrity or uh, accountability or these these types of things as as important values for them, uh, but there was no. Not one aspect of their behaviour was tied to that, and so in 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 sport, uh, and I think increasingly in business, the uh, majority of the conversations I have with with leaders actually interestingly start with we want to we you know we want to have a high performance culture. They have a conversation with someone like m- myself because I come from a high performance environment where they say well, we want to have a high performance culture. And the first question you are, you know, I always ask them, are, are you sure that's what, that's what you want? Uh, tell me the value or the importance of high-performance culture to you. And then most people can you know, articulate it as it relates to, to some form of ambition they have and you know, they try to backfill it from there. So well, the first thing we say is that high-performance culture requires high-performance behaviours. And high-performance behaviours, the, the most important of those sit with you. You're, you're the leader. And are you prepared to be? Are you prepared to be a high performance person yourself? And do you have that capability yourself? Um, and if and, and if they don't immediately have a sense of identity of themselves as that, 
well, they've got some work to do and they then need to focus on, you know, their, their, you know, how they, their, their habits, their personal habits, both good and bad as it relates to, to a leader to create those behaviours. So if we, if we're in sport, we've got a 19, 20 year old, uh, talented young athlete who doesn't perform to the best of their, their ability, there'll be some aspect of their behaviour that will focus on evolving or changing as part of that. And it's, a, and it's quite an intense teaching process to actually do that. And it, and it takes a lot to change anyone, as we know. Uh, so, so one thing is people might talk about the ambition, and I understand the ambition, but, but organisations don't rise to the level of their ambition. They, they fall to the level of their, their capability. And in this case, we're talking about the capability of, of the leader to actually establish and build a high-performance uh, culture within the place. And ultimately, it's not what the person, you know, people, people um, understand what a, a person thinks by what they say, but they understand <coughs> truly who they are by how they behave. And if there's a gap between what they're saying and what they're doing, well, it's just not going to cut it. So in in the end, the conversation's going to sit. I, I understand the ambition here, but are you prepared to be that every day of your life? Because a, a high performance culture is an unbelievably difficult, draining, exhausting, challenging, because you are forever uh, challenging people to step up into a standard of which, if you're not prepared to live every day of your life, then they're going to look at you and, and think of you in, as a fraud, basically. You're going to, and, and it's hard enough as a leader to think of yourself as an imposter anyway, let alone actually people seeing you as that, you know, because you you only talk this stuff, you don't do this stuff. And and it's complex. You know, and, and an example of that, we talked about Alistair Clarkson before, is that you know, he he basically, one of his great players, a fellow by the name of Sam Mitchell, he goes to Sam Mitchell and Luke Hodge, some of his best, most champion players in his team, and basically cuts off their careers at, when they've still got two and three and four years of their careers to play, because he understands that for the club to go forward at this point, he needs those players to move aside. But it's an unbelievable act of courage on, on his part. But he's able to back it up because he's got four premierships in the cupboard. So he's, he's, got, the, he's got that uh, in support of whatever decision that he wants to make. But he knows that his role in all of this is... is Bigger than Sam Mitchell, it's bigger than Luke Hodge. It's it's the Hawthorne Footy Club and the culture and and the the high performance expectations that come that come with the role. And he now has to make those call. Well, I, I don't. I would doubt that would happen in business. You know that 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 they haven't got an appetite for that type of conversation in the main. You know, but people like the idea of it. So the first thing we then talk about is if you are going to play in this space, this high performance space you are going to have to be singularly focused, determined, understanding, and you're going to have to be a great self-reflector because if you if you lose your way as a leader, the chances are the organisation will lose its way in regard to this. It's, it's funny, Cameron, on the show, invariably anybody who is good at what they do in any aspect of their mojo working, when you look at their past, they've all had to deal with their own struggles. And if I take you back to the late 90s, you as the boss led one of the biggest turnarounds in the history of AFL footy here in Australia with Melbourne. Bottom of the table, went to almost the top of the table, made the preliminary finals, big turnaround, great success. Yet the next year you got pulled up 
for exceeding the salary cap and then you personally paid the ultimate price with your job. And it wasn't just your job, but my question is it, it's very public. Like that, when all that went down, it didn't happen just in one day. I suspect it went on for a while and then suddenly the decision was made for you to leave the club. It's a really public thing that every foot and, – and AFL in Melbourne and around Australia is religious. So every football fan was across it. The media were across it. That night and next morning when you wake up and you use the word the imposter, the dark times, the self-doubt, when you woke up next day and it was all over the papers, all over the radio, all over the telly, take me back to that point. What was your inner dialogue? How did it feel and how did you face up to all that? It was an incredibly complex job at the time. that The club had actually been paying outside of the salary cap when I became the CEO. And so it was, it was sort of a uh, – there, I heard a wonderful line. It was Nathan Buckley was speaking recently, and, and he was talking about the um, – he was one of the last players when he was coming through the system to get the, the, the brown paper bag of cash. You know, the, it was almost like this celebrated part of – Part of the the sport, you know, that the you know, he was at a cafe somewhere and someone hands him a brown paper bag and there's ten thousand dollars of cash, whatever it was, in the early the early nineteen nineties. And he, he, his reflection was that he said he, he might have been the last player for that to happen. And and then he said, um, you know, sometimes you get stuck between eras, the the old way and the new way. And and then he then there's a little pause and he says. Um, no, no, we're, we're always between the old way and the new way. And, and, I, and it's a wonderful line. And that's where we were a little bit at that time. And it was we had a very very divided and um, uh, football club because the club had almost merged 18 months before with Hawthorne. It was, it was, and so we'd, we thought we'd let our way out of it and then it got messy and, um, and I was sacked in a really public way. And... I was only, uh, so what year was it? So 99. So I was 35 and I'd already been a CEO of two AFL clubs. I'd been a CEO for, because I was 24-year-old CEO of Richmond. And, and, and really it was still very much forming as a, as a person at, at that stage and I was a new father, a whole lot of other stuff going, going on. And all of a sudden felt that um, there was no the, the very thing that I'd given and I'd lined my pretty much my identi- identity with in one way or another uh, was highly unlikely to ever be available to me again, um, and not only in a way where uh, you know I felt that personally, but but it, it was I was surrounded by it because my friendship groups my uh, family support groups, all of those things, we'd all we'd all been a part of that, and uh, uh, and, I, and I got myself into a, a terrible place, unfortunately, and and it's at it's at those times where where you uh, are most need in need of friendship and most need of support, uh, and you uh, really struggle to find it, and because you you're not making yourself available to it. 
And the interesting thing about, and I've learned a lot about vulnerability in different phases of life for, for reasons sometimes um, outside of my control, which is often the case with vulnerability. But also lost my father in, in pretty terrible circumstances about um, three or four years before that. And so some of the things which were, I'd probably been the most stable aspects and, and the critical part of who I was were, were no longer available. And, and, and I lost my father at a time when I, I still reckon we had a whole lot more talking to do. We, 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 we'd only just started to have the sorts of conversations that, that we needed to have, I think, in many ways. And so even in this notion of vulnerability is that the, the, the first thing is that you, the, to actually show a lack of vulnerability or, or to pretend that you're not vulnerable is to actually pretend that you're not human or, or, you, or you're going to present yourself in a, in a way which is not true or not, not, a, not a reflection of, in fact, who you are. The second one is that stuff like this happens and it is going to impact on you, some of which you will be inside your control, outside of your control, all those sorts of things. But probably the most important aspect of, of vulnerability is that you are inviting people to help you. You're, you're making yourself available for support. And in my own way, I um, probably because my self-esteem and my self, probably almost loathing, if you like, was such that 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 uh, I didn't see myself worthy of that personally, and uh, and I got myself into 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 a pretty unhealthy space. And, and I, I was fortunate at two levels. Firstly, uh, there's a couple of friends who who weren't prepared to give up at that point, and also my my wife Cecily, who um, had uh, wonderful insight in, in, into me, and and stuck with me at a time when when perhaps you know she could have easily given up at, at that time. And and then I then I realised it was step by step, little little things. And and I'm I'm big on habits and and tracking of habits. And uh, so I just started to do one or two little things. It was around a time where where I read that you know Jerry Seinfeld writes a joke a day, you know, and, and puts a little cross through the the calendar on those days, and he wants to maintain the change. So I started tracking some of the things which I thought could bring me back to to a healthy place, and, and bit by bit. I was able to do that, and and very fortunately, I was then given another opportunity in the game at a time when I when really I'd, I'd pretty much given up on that, and uh, and that was to be the CEO of the Fremantle Football Club in, in Western Australia, and to go into a whole new environment and with a whole new challenge was 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 you know almost perfect for me at uh, at that time, and perfect for us as a family as well. So it was just you can be um, you can be uh, you can be overwhelmed by by your situation and your circumstance, but often it's just a, a little bit of light, and 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 that's what that was provided, and and through uh, as I mentioned, Cecily, and, and actually it was an old coach, Alan Jeans, who really I think understood the the gap in my life, which was uh, a a wise male, a wise a wise senior male who would have otherwise have been my father. Um, Alan Jeans, I think, in his own way, who knew Dad, um, was able to play a really pivotal role for me. And uh, and and then, you know, many years later, I get a I got a call from Alan, and he asked me to speak at his funeral. So I did the eulogy, or with one of the people who did the eulogy at his funeral. You know, twenty years later. So it's 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 a um, it's when you when you see those, or well, you, you get to experience, you know. 
the real value of friendship at that level. Um, in your quiet moments, they're the things you reflect on, you know, all of a sudden who won and who lost and whether we were inside the salary cap or whether I was treated fairly or not fairly, all of that just becomes bullshit really. The, the stuff which the stuff which counts uh, are those phone calls and those moments which only you personally get to reflect upon. You know, you, you're not you're not going out and celebrating it in the public way that sport often is public. They're the ones that you just think about yourself when um, when you're alone and uh, and being thankful. Alan Jeans also gave you what has kind of become, I guess, a bit of your mantra, which is find something. During that time. Cameron, what did you find? What did you find that you didn't know you had but you found? So the reason I, I write finding something at the top of the page every day of my life and, um, and it came from, came from a, uh, a, an Alan Jeans, uh, he, he had, it's not how you get knocked down, it's how you get up. And, uh, and, and it's, not his, it's not his quote, but you know, he, he was very insistent with that. For me, you know, that that it's it's the question is how 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 do I get up and how do I get up was you know the physical process almost of getting up as in how do you get yourself right in in the context of this but it's it was it was what actions you need to take so having enough insight into yourself to work out what you need to do so therefore. I made I made a, a quite a conscious choice at that stage of my life that uh, that I reckon I'd, I'd been a to do person. That um, sport was a wonderful thing to do. Being a CEO of a footy club was a wonderful thing to do. But I the transition I made was that it, it had to be a B thing. It, it's not a do thing. It's a B thing. And and the B thing is a I had to be the full person that that was whether that was as a that that was as a uh, a leader within an organization as a parent as a as a son as a husband or whatever it might be I had to be those things and I reckon because I'd, I'd gone into the game at 18 years of age my father was in the game there, there was always an aspect of me which was always going to be the son of but then 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 my father dies, and so therefore it's just me now. And I and I was still, in some ways, hadn't formed my own personal version of the B. You know, what was my own take on this? And people might call it purpose, but it was that you know my own sense of meaning, my own sense of connection, my own sense of belonging. And so that became my my B. And and therefore, I, it, it, and I think most of it, I, I use even the the metaphor of the to do list. You know. Uh, uh, Everyone, everyone, most people start their day with some form of a to-do list, which is important because it relates to action. But the, your to-do list is really the person you were yesterday in, in lots of ways. And so if you are going to write for yourself like a – I like the idea of a to-know list. You know, what do I need to learn about here? Where do I need to go deeper? Where do I need to grow? Am I prepared to be deliberate about my learning and my knowledge and my understanding and my sense of self and what, I, what it means to be all the things that I have to be in my life? And if you get to do, get to be good at the to know list, the learning, you then bring that into the to be list, the person I am. And so the finding something, which was originally just a simple thing of, I've just got to find something here, it just came from that. And I don't know what that something is, uh, became then quite a methodical process of learning. And and in my, my reflections, and, and, and I think it came 
very much from my, my mother's a very strong independent thinker, and and I, my brother's a very strong independent thinker. My sister is as well. That we, that, that that process of, um, of what do I need to learn about here? What do I need to know? Because what what the stuff that I've been doing thus far, as much as whilst everyone would look at it and say you. Yeah, the, the first thing people will always you – know, I get introduced as the 24-year-old CEO as though yeah, that was the thing that I was going to be for the rest of my life, uh, where, where, where I, I wasn't that anymore. I stayed 24 for about 20 years. It was just a crazy thing. So I had to actually work that out. So finding something is just a daily reminder to me of that question, what's important. And I really recommend people come up with something in their mind which just – if they were to write it at the top of the page every day of their life, what, what in fact would they write? And I, and I write finding something. Um, and it's and it's it's a challenge to myself that I, I'm still very much I'm, I'm 55 now um, that I'm very much a learner, uh, and I've had to be because I've had to reinvent who I am in the last five years of my life, and and that's where it actually comes from. But it has, you know, as even as I speak now. There, there's there, there's a little tad of almost overwhelm in my feelings, no, and and but I'm I'm confident that I can go into that place and have this conversation now, and feel good about having this conversation. Whereas if you'd asked me 20 years ago, oh gee, you know, or not even 20, 15 years ago, we we I, I just it, it just would have been a place I totally would have avoided, and and I probably had enough. Um, capability and nimbleness to avoid the conversation. You know, I had I, I, it, the, the trouble with with um, because of whatever personal capabilities you have is that they, they I was using them to to avoid the important conversations rather than embrace them. And uh, and I've never really I've never really thought that before, but I think that's probably also was. It's, it's like people who are very good on their feet. You know, they're, they're wonderfully nimble in, in the way they respond to circumstances, often aren't very good at preparing for that that conversation, which people who struggle with that, they, they might be, you know, they, they'll prepare a whole lot more. And, and I realised I had to go into the latter quality because I wasn't too bad at just wandering in and having enough confidence in myself that I'd be able to deal with whatever I had to deal with. I, I didn't necessarily then put in the work to actually, and, and that was a period of my life, I, I just put in the work. I really did. I had to rebuild myself. If we take you back to 1988, there's this young CEO who is 24 and running an amazing franchise of AFL football in Australia. Let's say you walk into the dressing room or you walk into the office and you can you walk up to that young kid, put your arm around him now and have a really quiet quiet moment with that kid and you could say something to him the same way that a Ron Barassi and Alan Jeans, Kevin Sheedy, all these guys have done for you over the years. If you could give that young you in 1988 a piece of advice or or a comment to think about, what would you say? I think the easy response to something like this is, um, you know, it's just be yourself, that type of stuff. It, and 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 I, and I understand why people would say would say that you know that a little it'll be okay type type scenario. But I think we 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 all have points in our life where it's not okay anymore. You know that 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 it doesn't feel okay anymore. 
So I think the, the best thing that anyone can ever do is is give someone a is give someone a skill, if you like, give someone a, a piece of learning that will then serve them well. And so I, I, I would, without ever, uh, I don't think you can fast track this stuff because often it has to happen organically. But it would just be, I, I'd be really practical about how I'd talk to me. I'd, I'd go. Cameron, just uh, set aside uh, three hours every month for a process of deep reflection. So, and and it's going to become important because you, we you, you you need to make sure that you this is right for you. Whatever you're going through is right for you. And 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 if it's not right for you as a leader, well, you're you're somehow you're you're dishonouring what it means to everyone. Now that with whom you're leading, and and so I think the you know I've you know and I hadn't thought about this response until you just asked it then. But the most obvious way of, of answering it is to is to be reassuring, if you like. But I'd, I I would want to know that I could get the benefit of my lived experience, my, the, the 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 25, 35 years I've had had since, and I could give that benefit back to me and, and 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 the biggest learning I've had has been building and creating a skill of of, uh, of self-reflection of which um, I can now use time and time again it'll just keep it'll keep serving me well and uh, and that's that's probably what I'd uh, that's probably what I'd like to give to myself there's a quote you had in your book and the book's called more to the game and it was a quote by, it's one of your favourite quotes, by author David White, and it said, if your eyes are tired, the world looks tired also. And I just read that and thought, you know, when you're out as a corporate speaker in front of audiences, and I've always thought there's a great book called From the Front of the Room because you learn, as you know, so much from being on stage and looking at an audience. When you look at an audience of leaders I guarantee the majority of people, their eyes just look tired. They're buckled. And you have to say, are you really turning up to give your best every day when your eyes are tired? The world looks tired also. How do you see that? Like, why does that quote mean so much to you? Uh, well, there's, there's the obvious response. Is if, you're, if you're tired, well, you just think of how, you know how your life goes when you're when you're exhausted or tired, and and I, I would say majority of people uh, live their life in 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 that sense. They, you know, it's almost like a default position. Even when you ask people how they're going, you, you, the, the first thing they'll say is, "Oh, I'm busy," and. and well, busy sort of uh, busy is the new lazy in some ways. It's like a, there's no there's no uh, pride in in busy, but there's also no pride in exhaustion either. There's no pride in tired. And so there's two things which come to mind. Firstly, if you are tired and continually tired, the chances are that you're your thinking is going to go into a default mindset, and 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 I, I see default thinking as perhaps 
the biggest danger of any leader because basically what you're doing is you're you're just drawing from your kit bag of solutions to whatever problems are emerging for you rather than thinking more deeply about the ambiguity and the complexity of whatever that circumstance is. is. So the best leaders I've worked with are the ones who are great at ambiguity, they're great at complexity, they're great at conflict, all these things, they're, they're, they're very important things to be good at. Whereas, you know, a lot when you're, when, you're, when you're tired and you're exhausted, you avoid those things like the plague. They're the last things you want to deal with, you know, at that time. So what you do is we come up with default solutions. So you might have the right answer, but the problem's changed, so it's, it doesn't work. And so the, I, and I use the word uh, dishonour a lot. If, if you're actually a, a, an exhausted leader, you're somehow dishonouring the role because in, 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 there's no means by which you can actually be the best you can be. And it's not about you. It's actually about the people and the organisation and whatever responsibilities comes with the leadership role which you've assumed in that, in that sense. So keeping your, keeping your mindset in, 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 in the best place it possibly can is just the core and fundamental responsibility of any leader. And, and if you haven't found that, well, you've got to find it. That's the thing you've got to find is how you actually do that. And I find – so you, you, there's a couple of things. Just, just purely the, the weight and the overwhelm is a, is a critical element of it all. Poor, poor personal habits is clearly another element of it all. If you're unhealthy in all the way, if you're not getting enough sleep, you're not eating the right foods, you're not exercising, you're not meditating, whatever it might be. But I also find probably the most significant is, is – Asking yourself and understanding which what aspects of the role genuinely energise you. What, what what parts of this job are the ones where you know you lean forward into the conversation. You just love this part of it all. And whenever you get into that tired eyes syndrome, do that part of the job for a period of time. Make a con. You don't have to make an announcement, but you make a personally conscious decision to go and do the bit of the job that you love doing. The conversations you love having, and because I grew up in the actual football side of football, as in the, the game itself, and I was a recruiting guy, I, I still loved the talent ID and the talent aspect of it all. If I found myself just with this feeling of I just am overwhelmed at this time by 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 this job, I cannot think about what I need to do next. I would give myself permission just to wander into the football area of the club. And just uh, you know, speak to the speak to the recruiting guys for half a day and find out oh who's the good players come through the system and they show me vision they show me tapes and it would re- remind me of why I love the game it would remind me of why I love this job and remind me of the privilege of my job you know and it was and, and I'd find those things energising so find out the things that actually energise you because one of the problems you have as a CEO you end up doing a whole lot of work you've never done before and which which you're not necessarily very good at and in fact the technical part of the job which actually got you into the place in the first you got you into the job in the first place is is now the thing that you find yourself never doing and uh, so everything's hard everything's new everything's different and uh, give yourself the permission to actually remind yourself of what you love about what you do because they're the things that energise you. It's not the it's it, you know people say if I get an extra half hour of sleep every night I'll be fine. That's not it. It's the things that you actually love about what you do which will energise you. And so for me it was the actual the, the technical part of the sport itself. You know having a really good you know going for a walk around the around the gardens in you know, the botanical gardens around the tan in Melbourne with the coach just to you know just to talk about footy for a little while or you know, I also love the creative side of it all so I'd, I'd find myself if I was in that place I love doing strategy stuff I enjoy strategy a lot and uh, and so that was the other aspect of it all but if you're if you're an exhausted leader you're a tired leader 
you're dishonouring the role. You've, you've got to bring yourself back into a energised, positive, thoughtful, insightful place. To wind this up, say say you are a leader and you are looking to build your team. What's the one most important characteristic you're looking for in the team you are building around you? Uh, I would say, and it's going to sound really quite trite, but I, I love self responsibility. I, I love I love uh, 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 individuals. If I, if I was sitting uh, in a in a job interview tomorrow with if I was looking to put together a senior team, and whether it's the existing group, and I think one of the things as leaders we always have to manage is our own grandiosity when we come into organisations. We have a sense that we have to change everything. And in my experience, there's far more capability in, in organisations, even those who seem to be underperforming at that time, than what, what people think. But if I was talking to someone either who's in the organisation or coming into the organisation as we're recruiting, the question I always ask is, is have you ever taught yourself anything? You know, have, you, have you actually, have you, um, you know, I don't, it doesn't have to relate to work, it can relate to any aspect of their life. And I would struggle with anyone who would, who, who would find that a difficult question to answer. I, I think it's a, a fundamental question. And the reason for that is you, you need to have learners in your organisation because you need to get them up to a level of self-responsibility as quickly as they can. And we would look at a, a player list within within an AFL club. And if we say there's 45 players on the list, if there wasn't somewhere between 10 and 15, and we just called it the penny dropped, has the penny dropped for that guy? As in they understand what the game means, they understand their role within the team, they understand their role within the organisation, uh, and really they're almost in some ways coaching themselves. If we don't get that, if we don't have 10 or 15 players on the list in that situation, we aren't going to win consistently. It's just going to be, we're going to be all over the place at different times. And I can see everyone talks about clubs which are inconsistent in their performance. I would say it's mainly because they haven't got that level of maturity within within the group, either in terms of number of games played or number of games played together, you know, that, that sense of team. And I would say the same thing within my group. I want, I want a, a, a room full of people who understand self-responsibility and they have a natural inclination for not only to get the best out of themselves, but they're energised by the opportunity that they've got to get the best out of other people. That would be my, um, that would be the, the core that I would be looking for. And you don't know what it's going to look like. Every team environment is totally different. And that experience came to me. I, was, I got to spend a fair bit of time at FC Barcelona in, in Spain. And the very first thing they say to me is don't, they've got this wonderful sporting culture is don't try and take our culture home create create your own you'll have your own version of this thing you can't you can't pick this thing up and take it there you've got to build whatever your special own version of this special version of this thing actually is and i would say the same thing in every team every team will be different every group will be different but if you've got a whole lot of people in there who have who, who, are, who are learners, who, who understand self-responsibility, have, have a, they get selflessness, well, stuff will work out for itself. You'll have no idea what it's going to look like in 12 months' time, but it'll, it'll work itself out. What I like about your stuff, Cameron, is you break it down into systems that we can apply. And the book is great. The stuff you talk about is great. And one of the systems I heard you talk about was to read an hour a day, write an hour a day, and train an hour a day. 
How close do you get to that in your own world on a, on a week that you can control? Yeah, no, I get pretty close. So I, I train every day. Uh, I get up early and I, I swim and, and cycle. They've become my things and and they weren't necessarily, they weren't always my things. They've become my things because one of the, because I'm doing my own business now, the one, the one, one aspect of my life I always had is this, this obvious sense of team and belonging because football clubs, they reek of all of that. That's, that's, they're, they're intrinsically about that. So I, I do my swimming in squads and I do my training, my riding and cycling in, in pelotons and groups and, and I really enjoy, enjoy that. So I'm, I'm up at um, quarter to five every morning and, and do that. And I have a, what I call an, an opt-out system, not an opt-in system, that, that you opt out of. I opt out of exercise, not opt-in. Like I didn't train this morning because we've got, you know, having a conversation, but also got a little bit of a cold. I don't want to push it. Uh, so then read. I Yeah, I've always got I've, – I've built the habit around – I get on the tram a little bit in Melbourne. And um, so rather than reach for my phone – I keep a Kindle in my um, one of the small Kindles, and I, I reach for my Kindle, and, and probably there's half an hour of reading just sitting on a tram, and 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 you get to do that. And the writing, probably more, I block it. I'm doing a fair bit of writing at the moment, um, and I'm more likely to do that in a in a in a three hour block, you know, uh, once or twice a week rather than uh, rather than in an hour a day. Um, and I think that's just the mindset. And because I, I went back and studied um, fine art a few years ago at uh, the Victorian College of the Arts, and so I had I had the experience of of actually having to understand and to develop a system of creativity for myself. And I and I basically utilised that that process. And and so I, I and so I just had this thing where I'm, I'm I'm consistently collecting thoughts, as in I'm a good note taker. I use Evernote if there's an article I like, bang, just collect it. Um, probably the most important process, though, is the curation of your thinking. Is, is Are you setting aside time to curate your knowledge and your understanding and making sense of whatever the last book is? So if I if I listen to your podcasts and, and, and even listening to the, the Susie Quattro podcast is the thing that I took out of that was her deliberate process of – her, her, her writing of poetry, her creative process, um, and so how you actually, a, when you get to the end of a, when you get to the end of a podcast or the end of a book or, or the end of a, a YouTube or TED talk, whatever it is that you're, a you taking setting aside just ten or fifteen minutes at the end of it, or just to write down some notes on what you really got from that, because if you don't, you'll forget. You know, you'll 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 think you'll remember it, but you won't. And then I so I spend time curating my thinking, and then I set myself just the goal of, of 600 words in an article every week. And uh, by having those objectives, that gives me the, the training, you know, the, the, the trained sort of thinking, reading, and uh, and writing uh, process. And it's a, it's a wonderful habit to have. And and all of them really, uh, whenever I do it, and I get into that routine, um, the multiplier effect is huge because you. You find you're having conversations such as these, where you go, "Gee, that that article that I read two years ago is now playing out in the way that we're having the conversation, or that piece of learning, or it comes it comes out in my coaching or my teaching, or um, I think often in your parenting." And, and I've got an interesting parenting because I've got a transgender child, so even this this learning and knowledge of how to 
parent in a way that was going to be a you know, circumstance very different to what you know you, your thoughts or expectations were going to be. So I, I had to go through a, a different level of learning to understand because I, I, I all of a sudden don't know how to parent in this situation. So if I thought I was going to use my old way of parenting, uh, well, it wasn't going to serve me very well at, at that at that point. And so, so even in in the conversations you have, if you if you're not into um, your own personal learning and personal development, uh, I don't think you can. Uh, I don't think you can do this stuff at, at a consistently high level. Cameron, I have got another page and a half of stuff that I wanted to ask you about because I think your content, your writings, your book is so rich with learnings and experience to take out of it, but I'm very mindful of your time today and we appreciate the fact that you bailed on your ride or your swim to be with us. This has been gold and I'm sure, Rubbo, you must got a page of stuff out of this for coaching the boys. uh, I'm on top of it. There's plenty there. And that's a lot of weight. That's a lot of weight too. If you're sitting on top of it, that's a lot of weight, brother. The, the, thing, I've, the thing I've enjoyed about um, just listening to your podcasts and, I, and they, they benefit from the work that you guys have done leading in. I, I think there's, it's what I talked about before. There's a, you could easily just uh, work your way through this conversation on how it's playing. But, but every single one I've listened to has, has shown the value of drawing on a piece of insight and connection, which – obviously you can relate to which you then draw out on the basis of, of, of almost a unique piece of thinking or, or understanding for the person you're interviewing. And, and, that, and that, is, that, that, that's pure coaching. That's pure teaching. That's pure learning. And, and there's, there's a um, – I read once about uh, – it's, it's, it's not – everyone talks about the value of listening and the importance of listening, and we're all fundamentally no good at it. But, but the, the power of the, uh, of the skilled interruption in – in the process, and I, I think you guys are really great at that. Is the there's a there's a there's a skilled interruption here where 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 you are helping the person, even though they're doing the talking, find a deeper piece of insight into themselves, of which they then feel compelled to talk about, and the value then for the people who are listening is so much more higher. So that's that's what I've really enjoyed about listening to your stuff. So so well done with all of that. That's great. And it's good to know we're skilled at something. <laughs> <laughs> but you're, it, it's really interesting, Cameron. Your, your stuff, there's so rich um, is a word that I know you mentioned, Michael Gervais, who's been on our show before and he's in your book. But, yeah, and, and Gervais is fantastic. Yeah. And, uh, and he talks about the richness and the nuances of the words you use. And the stuff you've got, your backstory, how you've – progress through it and then how you have analysed it, drawn conclusions and then built the so what's out of it. Um, honestly, I've got another page of stuff that is all fascinating for me to dig into, not just your journey but the stuff from Alan Jeans and the great coaches, Alan Jeans, Kevin Sheedy, um, and so it goes. So I have really enjoyed this and I'm sure even our international guests because we have people from all over the world listening is to hear an insight into Australian sport that I then suspect relates to a a Chelsea, the Patriots, the Green Bay Packers, the Seattle Seahawks, the Springboks. I think that the stories relate to everybody and we can take them out as leaders. And also, you know, we haven't even touched on the parent side of things. So there's loads more to, uh, to talk about yet. So mate, thank you so much for your time. It's been a real delight 
we were introduced to you, uh, which I think I said to you when I wrote to you, we were introduced to you by someone who saw you speak, who then wrote to me and said, look, this would be a great guest for your show, which is how we got in contact. So thank you to Tom who wrote to me. Uh, and it's been terrific, mate. Oh, fantastic. No, no, I really appreciate it. And congratulations on the work you're doing. I think it's, um, I've, uh, I've actually sent, uh, links out to a whole lot of people who I know are, are learners and appreciate this. A few of them who are young coaches in the AFL as well, just to, uh, to pick up on the show. Cause I think it's, there's a, uh, there is um, just if, you, if you're looking for a, a default uh, podcast to go to, well, you, you, I'm, I actually just listen to it now without any thought about who your guest is, and uh, and that's and that's that's the good sign, I think. That's nice. So that's good, Robbo. So we've got your mum, my that's mum. Right. That's right. Yes. Cameron, the Withered Oaks. The guys of the Withered Oaks. And we've got yeah. a couple of AFL coaches, sister coaches. That should be five or six yeah, people. We're doing all right. That's, that's after we've six almost years. Do, we've, we've, six doubled, years. we've doubled our numbers this week. Sweet. The numbers are good. The numbers are good. You need to, the numbers are like, good. The one thing is we, for all the good work we do, if the numbers are no good, we're not surviving. The scoreboard ultimately does tell the story. You know, it can often be a bit of a distraction for us, but, but in the end it will tell the story. All right, everybody, this is Jason Overcome Redman. I may have survived an Al-Qaeda ambush in Iraq, but it was even harder to survive the Mojo Radio Show. We spoke about the Withered Oaks at the beginning of the show, my football team. Do you reckon he might come and give us a hand? I think you'd have to ask nicely. And being a guy who lives in Melbourne, I'm sure with the right espresso coffee, you'd probably get him across the line. Hey, thought, that's right. I thought at the back of that, and this is very Australian-centric, but as a kid growing up, I played AFL football uh, in Queensland. And there was an – Lola, could you play the anthem – for AFL football in Australia. I'm on it. I gotta say, hearing that. The hairs on the back of my neck. <laughs> Even that, that song's got to be thirty years old because I was playing yep. under nineteens. Yep. The, the hairs on the back of my neck still stand up. Now, that's very Australian centric. For all our international guests, that is kind of one of those anthems. It's a bit like Hank Williams Jr. doing Friday Night Football of the NFL. It's yeah, I was going to say the Friday Night Football centric. Yeah. But we and, and actually on that. Something you spoke to me about in the studio of the day, we have people from all over the world who listen to us, which we take for granted in the podcast world. We're a, tro- we're a truly global show, and I was shocked when I went and had a look at the statistics. Hello to our friends in Zambia, believe it or not. The Czech Republic, we're huge. Uh, and in, uh, in Mongolia, we are also doing really well. So um, I don't know how we translate into Chinese in Mongolia, but haoshi haoshamshing. To you, Gary. No, I think the reason that we are so big over there is because of AP, because it's fair to say ah. that he doesn't speak good, proper English. That's right. And I think that what he's really doing is the, the stuff that comes out of his mouth has been translated in Mongolian uh, to good morning, good how are you? It's nice to have you on the show. Yeah. And I think that's where it is. He doesn't speak Mongolian, he speaks red wine. The Mojo Radio Show. So to take us out, I've been on a run with Fleetwood Mac of recent times. Have listened to a fabulous audio book from Audible. Hello, our friends at Audible. 
And this book was about the journey of Fleetwood Mac. And there's a great lesson of rock from the Mac Lola. Roll it. Everything drops out and we hear a now iconic bass riff. That John McVie riff and Mick Fleetwood drum accompaniment was originally used in a discarded Christine McVie song called Keep Me There. When I heard that piece, I thought, mm-hmm. look at people who go into brainstorm. I was in a brainstorm last week and say there are 70 people in a room and you run a brainstorm for an hour, they come up with 200 ideas and they choose one or two to run with. What happens to the rest? Now, that mm. was one day. So there are people in the room, let's say they've worked 20 years in their life and let's say they've done 20 brainstorms a year, which would be light on. There's 400 brainstorms. And they sat there and heard 100 ideas per brainstorm. Do the math. My question is, what happens to all those ideas? Yes. And there's always one person in the room, I guarantee it, one out of 70 or 100 people who has got their own journal out, who's just scribbling down all these ideas. And when you and I worked in radio, that guy was a guy called Phil Douse, and he had (laughs) a whole room, wall-to-wall, with back in the day, pieces of paper and journals. And whenever we needed a promotion or a, a, a liner or something, he would just go into his room, pull out stuff from 10 years ago from Kiss FM in LA or K-Rock. He would find some old liner or some old promo, regurgitate it. And it just seems to me that that piece from Fleetwood Mac is a classic example of how they'd written that baseline for another song that never really worked, well, then why, why throw it away? Why not, why not do a Brian Eno to it? Why not do an Edge from U2 to it and say, well, how do I tweak that and use it again? But if you don't keep the stuff that can be used then, because you can take stuff from three, four, five, ten years ago, tweak it, add to it, combine it, do something different to it, bring two ideas together. And that's why I think journaling in a written form is so powerful. But you, I, I know you do a similar thing now with a, in an audio sense, don't you? Yeah, it's not just recently I've done it. I've, I've done it for a long time. On the desktop of my computer, I keep a folder, which is my inspiration folder. So in there, I, when I'm surfing around the interwebs, listening to other people's work, looking for ideas, if I come across some great sound bites or a, a great line in a promo that I just think, wow, that's a great way of thinking about it, um, I tuck it away in there. And when I'm stuck for an idea... Uh, I turn to that folder and, and play some things back and, and usually find a gem or two that I can take and turn around into my own idea and then put into my work. So um, I, it's invaluable. And then what needs to happen is you need to take the time to go through that folder or your journal. And the journals can be from whatever year, whatever era. And then you need a piece of chain to tie the ideas together. <laughs> We're out. Are you creating a link?
Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the basement of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at the Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. To help us get better and give more people the opportunity to touch up their mojo, you can now find us on Patreon. Follow the links on the front page of our website and for a coffee or two a month, you'll get regular bonus material and a copy of Explosive Hits 19, the best of the Mojo Radio Show. In the meantime, to polish your next audio production, check out voodoosound.com.au. For more about Gary, see garybirtwhistle.com and to book me, go to andrewpeters.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.